me on, Nick. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, the guests get to dedicate the episode to whatever they like. So, beginning, prior to every ep- uh, episode, the guest gets to dedicate it. What would you like to dedicate this episode to, or what? Oh, I'll dedi- th- that's an easy one. I'll dedicate this one to my younger brother, Chris, who just turned 30 today. No kidding, it's his birthday? It is. It's, it's So, he's 30 today. All right. Well, how about this? Happy birthday, Chris. <laughs> there it is for for Chris. I'm sure he'll he'll appreciate that. Even though I sent him a text uh, the other day saying I said, uh, "So how does it feel to uh, be just about 30?" And he he sent one text. He said, "Depressing." <laughs> <laughs> I know when I turned 30, I was kind of shocked. Like, I'm 30. Like what? What? I'm 30. What happened? Right. Yeah. I feel like when I turned 30, I just said, well, now I don't have to care about another birthday for a decade. So, <laughs> right, <you're laughs> yeah, right. just don't you, you stop thinking about it when you're 20s, you're boy, like, oh, boy, my 30s are coming. You know, I got to get my act together or whatever. And then when you turn 30, I feel like you just kind of start to to know who you are and who you want to hang out with and all that stuff. And yeah, uh, I, I think, you know, it's it it becomes easier on some level at 30 um so well i'll say happy birthday chris and um thanks again for robert uh Kuskowski coming on uh he has his full, first full feature film it's out in available on amazon prime it's called the man who killed hitler and then the bigfoot uh robert i'll say congratulations on the film appreciate it thank you uh, from what i've heard it was a long time in the making kind of right yeah, it took uh, about it was it was more than twelve years. I've said twelve years a bunch, but when I really think about it, that there's there's a case to be made that it was more like fourteen or so. But I mean, really, kind of seriously trying to develop it for about twelve years, and then and then really getting into the nitty gritty of of setting up an LLC and and bringing in investors and casting the movie. That was all uh, well over a three-year process just to get all that infrastructure put together so yeah over 12 years to get it made and to get people kind of actively interested in making it and i want to um people can where can they find it i know they can find it on amazon prime right now is there anywhere they can find it or yeah they can find it on amazon prime and itunes and and if you have xfinity or comcast or um, you know, pretty much any any streaming and VOD service should have it as a rental right now. And then, uh, above all, the cast and crew and I would love it if people went and saw it in a movie theater. Yeah, uh, it's playing in select theaters around the country. So, if you want it to play near you uh, and you don't see it at one of your local theaters, call them up and especially the indie theaters. Let them know that it's a movie that you want to see and. Uh, you know, they may very well book it, and that's with RLJ Films. Um, and that doesn't just go for uh, independent movie like, you know, it doesn't just go for this movie. Yeah. If there's other yeah. independent movies you love, try to go see them in a theater um, and support them in that way. But if you can't make it or you just really would love to watch it at home, then you have that option too. And um, pretty much, you know, I'm, I did my own comic book, and a lot of people in the comic book world kind of know you before the movie from Elsie Hooper, right? Yeah, I mean, if you if there, there's a group of people that know that comic, it was kind of a really kind of an underground comic, but 
um, I, in a lot of ways, it started this whole entire journey having done L.C. Hooper. I was, I was illustrating that and writing it at UMass, where it appeared in the UMass Daily Collegian for years. And, you know, 25, 30, some odd thousand kids were reading it, and it just generated kind of this little following around the country once it became kind of a webcomic where more people could see it. Yeah. Um, it was it became a, a basically a job i was cranking out three comics a week and uh as i started to progress writing more and, and working in the film industry i would just kind of work on the comic almost as a not not quite a hobby but a glorified hobby just to try to finish the story for the people that were that were loyal to it and and reading it and there's there's only a handful of comics left until the end and at some point I'm definitely going to get back around to finishing it but drawing comics as you know is it's painstaking and it takes hours and hours to do yes. even a few panels um, so it's really just a matter of that being my sole focus to to finish it up well exactly especially on multiple things I do podcasting I do the comic book and then you know I'm watching movies and have other interests and stuff it's hard to get all of a sudden back into sitting at the drawing table and get back to where you've already where you've been where you're from and get started up again and yeah and i mean and i still i draw all the time uh it's just the brain space for drawing yeah. comics is a different thing i mean before yeah. we did this podcast i was downstairs just drawing at my dining room table um i was drawing swamp thing so <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's up there on my wall somewhere around here in the city. okay cool yeah. i wish i had my my uh this is a Skype interview, so we can see each other. They'll just hear us. But if I had my notebook, I would have showed you, shown you what I was working on. <laughs> <laughs> so you still with, with the movie, and you still working with uh, the Elsie Hilbert. And then, um, did you do anything with like some like, kind of combination, like an animation thing? Uh, I did a live action short uh, with uh, Lucky McKee and John Sales, uh, and my editor, who was a producer on the short, Zach Passero. Um, live action puppetry okay. uh, directed a short based on on the comic, and it was just so much fun to make that with a team of puppeteers hidden beneath the camera. And Sean Bridgers voiced and puppeteered the lead puppet, which Lucky's uh, wife Vanessa is an incredibly talented artist. She uh, built the full size puppet over the course of a couple months in the summer of 2015. Um, and like I said, then a team of puppeteers brought it to to life. It was a it was a blast. Um, with the this is the full feature film. Um, I'm sure you kind of like to write a little bit. Is kind of writing and drawing kind of go together a little bit? Yeah, I I love to write. I went to UMass and had had begun there studying journalism. I didn't know there would be a pathway to film here in Massachusetts. So right. I thought, well, I can I'll work for a newspaper and and. Uh, you know, I, I, I just enjoy writing. It doesn't matter what the subject is. So I thought that I'd become a journalist and that would be my trajectory. And then doing the comic at UMass uh, brought a certain amount of attention to that. And then uh, the, the needs of the comic became uh, more and more, I guess, intense. And then there was a couple guys in Hollywood that found that comic and wanted to make a movie of it and that kind of dragged me into the movie world so I started there to do journalism because I didn't think I could do movies and then not even a year later I was pulled into the to the filmmaking business through that comic well with writing this full feature film uh, 
did it, what was the, when did you just begin? Well, how did the writing process start? Did you just have an idea? Did you have a concept? Because obviously it's a very unique title with this movie. Yeah, the, the script for The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot uh, began, like I said, probably 15 years ago or something like that. And I can't remember exactly when it was, but uh, I wrote the first 10 pages and sent them to my friend Ben, okay. who just thought it was completely outrageous. <laughs> right, yeah, right. The title was already on it when I sent it to him. It said The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot, but the opening 10 pages were the killing of Hitler only. And it was kind of like an espionage sequence that you'd see in a James Bond or a Mission Impossible. Yeah. Uh, and I've said this before, and it's incredibly true, when you kill Hitler in the opening 10 pages of your script, there's nowhere left to go. <laughs> right, and, but I knew kind of how I would get toward the Bigfoot element of the story by using uh, Hitler as this monster that was real, I'd have the hero fight another monster, and they would echo each other in that Hitler was spreading a plague of ideas, and then Bigfoot would be spreading a literal plague. So all of that was in those first 10 pages, it just, the rest wasn't written yet. But the title was there, and like I said, it just, it, it killed him, this idea that, that the hero kills Hitler in the first 10 pages, and then somewhere off, later in this script, it was gonna get to the Bigfoot, he just, couldn't figure out how is that going to make sense and was yeah. really excited about seeing me try to pull it off and then it was just a you know period of, of time developing that idea and setting it down did you always and I, i'm going to come back to it did you always kind of kind of think of it as two different movies oh yeah even even making the movie we all talked about it as two different movies okay uh, they're joined by this lead character, but tonally the movies are, are quite different. So yeah. we shot for three weeks with Sam Elliott, and that's the 1987 section of the film. And then we shot for two weeks with Aiden Turner, and that's the 1940s section of the film. And for all intents and purposes, the entire crew, including hair, makeup, costumes, uh, production design, we were making two totally different movies. So. In, in writing it, the trick was was making those two ideas gel so that they felt of a piece. And then in shooting it, it was connecting them so it didn't feel jarring or exhausting, constantly uh, sliding in and out of timelines. Uh, when you began to roll the writing of the movie, did you have an ending in mind or did you kind of work up to the ending? I knew I didn't want the lead, this is a spoiler, and I guess we, we can just have a spoilery um, conversation because I don't think that any of the spoilers are what the movie's even about anyhow so uh, I, I wanted the lead character to live I felt like in a lot of these ki kind of stories kind of an old man looking back and, and man versus beast and man versus nature and man versus himself a lot of those they, they die in the end that's kind of the yeah the, it's, it's very it's almost like when you begin to watch it, like this is this is a this is eventually a, that's what I perceive is going to happen. Yeah, and I, I knew that that would be the perception, and I was looking for a little bit of hope in my life at the time, and I, I just saw it as a hopeful story, and so I wanted to take these two really bizarre events and kind of do a heartfelt character study that ends with 
hopefulness. And I, and I think that more than anything was maybe what made me excited about writing it is that it would be um, counter to what people might anticipate and it would continue to surprise me as I wrote it. I think there was something fun about knowing there's one very specific way that this movie could go and at every right. turn try to pivot to the direction that's a little um, more meaningful for the characters that are in it and, and ultimately, again, get to a place where I feel that there's um, a, a message about, I mean, it gets into the deeper themes of the movie, but essentially a message of it's never too late to reconnect with the things that are important to you. Yeah, I, you know, for me, it would grab me is sometimes what you thought was your major accomplishment isn't actually, you know, something that passes something. So you still have other remarkable things that you can do later on. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that, especially because with the killing of Hitler, once you've seen the movie, you understand that it had no impact on history. So we're living in that timeline, yeah. basically. Yeah. And so it didn't it didn't mean anything. And the killing of Hitler is is something that he he says Hitler had it coming, and he did. But he just didn't feel like he was the the vessel to dole out that justice and yeah, to be. That's on, a, yes, I wholeheartedly you see that. Very as well. an ex, as basically an executioner, yeah. that just it, for whatever reason the type of person. Bar is that doesn't sit well with him, and that's always the big discussion: is people saying how how happily they'd kill Hitler, or they'd kill Hitler as a baby, or whatever it might be. And I wanted to create an American hero that is incredibly good at these tasks, but is extremely conflicted with them. And it doesn't matter who the killing is toward and whether they deserve it or not. I felt like that was a character worth exploring. Uh, since I do um, storyboards for certain small films and I've done my own comic book, did when you write it, did you also do some storyboards with the movie, with the script? Yeah, there there were hundreds of storyboards for this movie. Uh, uh, conceptual designs, there were probably 20 to 30 full-color okay. conceptual designs, kind of like they did for Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark, and those were to help... Uh, executives and and potential crew to kind of see what I was thinking because when you propose this notion it comes so loaded with preconceived notions that having the conceptual designs to drop right in front of them could immediately adjust those preconceived notions and then they were kind of in on the I guess you could say the trick I never saw it as a trick but essentially if it were a magic trick it was kind of the the how, how it works okay uh, that's what the conceptual designs did, showing what this movie actually was. And then just for me as a first-time director, I felt that being prepared was was maybe the most important thing I could I could do, and so I spent a lot of time with storyboards. Well, you kind of answered my question, my next question a little bit, but um, you never thought of this as a black and white? You always worked in color in this? I mean, the thing is, is Alex Bendler's photography in the so the answer is before ever making the movie yeah. yes i definitely thought about it being black and white but i think that it's so inherently risky the idea is just in that title that to then add a whole other layer of risk 
which is basically trying to ask people to now embrace a black and white movie, which no matter how much I love that idea, no matter how hard I would have pitched it, it, it was never going to, no one was going to let me, that would be a, a bridge too far. Yeah, um, it'd probably be a little more of an unnecessary risk for something that probably the payoff wouldn't be, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the thing's already taking so many risks, and to get a team of people and then ultimately investors and, and financers to uh, agree to take this on, me then asking for it to be in black and white is a big ask. And, and I was trying to be respectful of those people. So my conceptual designs were very much in color and I had a, a, a vision for the, the, the look of this movie in mind and Alex Vendler, our DP, executed that in a really beautiful way. Uh, and and in, in post we looked at it in black and white which if you you know have a way of doing that it's worth looking at a few scenes of the movie in black and white because it looks just terrific so there, there was always a temptation but it looks I'm so happy with the color and then we had this incredible um, colorist who did the uh, DI on the movie named Aiden Stanford and, and he had been one of the lead restorationists on Lawrence of Arabia Oh, really? um, yeah, and so and so there was never a question anymore of now it should be black and white. We we fully embraced the color vision for the movie. I have to say, you the the color concept, and I'm I'm kind of a little surprised at the black and white, but so saturated, it's mm. so full. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, we were trying to in the the '80s section of the movie to give it the general almost subliminal look of a movie in the 1980s where we didn't want it to be a pastiche because that I think is is a little corny so yeah. it was right at the edge of perception you would kind of feel this 80s vibe and then in the 40s it was very much the same but with a kind of Hitchcockian technicolor look to it but again just at the edge of perception so that both timelines could uh, inter uh, interact with each other without feeling jarring as you jump back and forth, but each timeline has its own visual signature too, and they each have their own unique film grain as well. So, how long did it take to flush out the entire script? Um, all in all, I mean, it was probably the first draft, which maybe I wrote in three months, was all of the core ideas were there. And so every year that went by that it didn't get made was just a little more time to, to tweak and work and add some more concepts and ideas. Um, and then in 2011, that was the last major draft I wrote of the, the script, uh, adding uh, certain elements to the love story. And then the whole scene with the Russian uh, was kind of the last addition to the script. But that was uh, six years before we even started shooting the movie. Do you, do you like working at uh, writing at night or during the day or? I definitely, at night, I, I tend to feel like the town is really, really quiet. I like the feeling of just knowing that everybody's kind of asleep. Um, I'm not going to disturb anybody. I, I have my headphones on and, uh, or I can quietly play music in my office and I just feel, I've always enjoyed working at night. I, I, I'd say 90% of my work gets done at night. Are you, do you like doing dialogue as you write, or is this? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I, I it's a it's it's fun. It's there's a there's a thing about 
writing good dialogue that when it's working and you feel those characters, it just flows in a really natural way. And you can suddenly have four pages that you wrote really, really quickly. Um, it's the, it's the core of the story, the kind of the machinery of it that I think takes a lot of time, but the stuff with characters, once you kind of know who the people are, um, they kind of inform their own direction. You, there's certain ways you just can't write them because the, the character becomes resistant to that. Um, and so it's, I mean, I love, I love writing dialogue and having, uh, these scenes, I mean, the movie has a lot of scenes where it's either two characters or three characters just, just talking and sometimes for, you know, 11, 12 pages of dialogue. Um, that is definitely kind of the way Hal Ashby or Robert Altman might have done it, and I love those guys. Uh, certainly the Coen brothers. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, that, that's some of my favorite stuff is when you crack the code on a, a good character scene and you feel like, this is this is done and you don't do a lot of uh retouching on it and that was something that was really cool is when sam elliott came on board and when he read the script uh one of our earliest discussions was that he's worked on stuff where the script changes a lot and he said i'd really like the script to just stay put i don't want to see it altered and that became incredible because anytime anybody suggested any changes i could just go well sam really wants to keep it that way. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so once you get the whole script flushed out, um, how did you go uh, assembling your crew? Um, well, the, uh, the, the had to do the fi financial end of the movie, and that took uh, you know uh, two and a half years or more yeah. just to do the business end of the movie and put that together. And at that point, our, our casting director Kelly Roy, she read it. Um, felt really strongly about it and was extremely supportive of it. And, and she was able to pull off kind of these casting miracles that, that happened for this movie. People were responding to the script, yeah. but somebody has to put it in their hands and convince them that it's not craziness, that there's some reason why they should come do this. And so she's really gifted at doing that and was able to make the case with uh, people's agents and reps that it was a risk worth taking. So you you didn't you didn't hold any like audition calls or anything. You just kind of leaked it out somewhere. Uh, for Young Bar and for Maxine, there was quite a large casting call. We okay. saw a lot of people. Um, and like a flash, one day I realized that Aiden Turner was the right person for the part, and we offered it to him. He had not auditioned for it. Uh, he was doing Poldark at the time, and I think, I, I think he, he was approaching. A, yeah, he was approaching a hiatus, and we knew that the timing would be right, and also realized that he would match Sam Elliott in a really interesting way. And so then it became really scary if he said no. We we weren't finding the person that matched Sam in that way. Um, so when I talked to Aiden, I finished that call, I realized there was a really good chance it was going to work out and we really enjoyed talking to each other and, um, it, 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 it worked out. I'm so glad he said, yes, it, it was, that was a critical piece of the puzzle as, as critical as Sam. You know, usually with independent uh, filmmakers, you don't really have a lot of time for assembling like a large body, but were you able to do table reads, able to get everybody together to kind of talk over stuff? 
usually we were able to get at least the two characters that were in a scene together some time to do that. Even if it was just a few days in advance, we would try to schedule it and find it. And I think the actors were in such support of this project that they would come early and find the time to do that. Nice. Even Turner came early so he could spend a little time with Sam and, and just kind of talk about the voice and the character and, and similarities and things that they wanted to do ever so slightly different and then certain things that they wanted to tie to one another. Um, Eller Coltrane, who plays the clerk in the scene with uh, Sam over the lottery ticket, they had a whole weekend to prepare and rehearse. Same with uh, Larry Miller. So it wasn't a mountain of time, but we made sure that they, they felt like they had a good chance to, to spend at least a few days working on the scene before we got there. Uh, one of the actors that probably won't be recognized is the guy who plays Bigfoot. How did you find the guy to play Bigfoot? Well, Spectral Motion, who uh, built the Bigfoot uh, from the ground up, is kind of this very old-school universal movie monster version of the Bigfoot, yeah. uh, which is essentially a, a, a guy in a suit just done with beautiful prosthetics and an alpaca fursuit. <laughs> <laughs> They had recommended a few people, and one of them was Mark Steger, and, and I just love talking to Mark. He's a real actor. He has uh, really great ideas. He cared a lot about the history of the Bigfoot. He wanted to know more about the Bigfoot than was ever on the page, and I just love that about him, and he's just a really kind, mellow person, and I just thought this is – and he likes being in, in makeup. He likes being in the creature costume, and he can do that for – hours on end so it was just the right person and, and i'd long said that i thought the bigfoot should be the size of a normal person that it wouldn't really have that big of feet and it wouldn't look like a bigfoot as everybody thinks of bigfoot right. being um and mark's body type was perfect for that because he's just you know he's the, the height of a normal person and and he's a a thin a thin person he's not emaciated by any means but we'd be able to build up his his rib cage and his uh, his figure to make him look sickly and plagued. Uh, so maybe Bigfoot that you see in this movie kind of looked sort of like the Bigfoot that you see in in typical Bigfoot lore 50 years ago. Yeah. But now he's so sick he looks like this t goblin. <laughs> Were you ever, when you were filming the whole thing with Bigfoot, were you ever worried that somebody was out there, an amateur, and actually thought they they captured the authentic Bigfoot or anything? We were for a little bit... In your back of mind, thinking, you know, maybe somebody catches this. And I've, I've never told this story before, but uh, we went up to the cliff yeah. to uh, to shoot all the Bigfoot, basically about to get burned by Bar. He puts a bunch of kindling around him, and he he finds him and holds his hand and cries, and then puts kindling around him. And that was about a day long shoot, and we had gear that we needed to bring up there, um, a fair amount of gear. And so my brother and a couple of his friends hauled all that gear up the mountain. And then we realized we had no security to stay overnight with it. <laughs> so my brother and his friends slept on the cliff that night with all of the equipment for the, for the next day to shoot that stuff. And sometime early in the morning, this guy came up, my brother said, and he did acid and just sat on the cliff and stayed there playing his guitar for, I think it must've been 12 hours. Cause when we showed up the next morning, 
there was just this shirtless guy sitting on the cliff playing the guitar and there's Bigfoot walking around him while he's on acid. And I just, I, I wondered what, what must this guy think is happening? And the weirdest thing was he never reacted to anything we were doing. So there was never, he never talked to us. He never even seemed alarmed by it. He, d he honestly didn't seem to notice that an entire film crew and a guy in a full Bigfoot suit was wandering around him all day. And instead of trying to, you know, see if, you know, we weren't going to kick him out or anything, oh. but we ended up just realizing, look, the guy's doing his own thing. We'll just leave him alone. But if in any shot of that sequence, I'm going to destroy the movie for people now. In any shot of that sequence, there's a there's a shirtless guy on acid playing the guitar about 40 feet away the whole time. All right, I'm going to have to go back and watch it for the third time just for the acid. <laughs> Yeah, the, the whole entire movie is shot uh, within 10 minutes of my front door here in Massachusetts. Okay. So every every shot, every sequence is right here in, in the neighborhood of Turner's Falls, Massachusetts, Gill, Massachusetts, Greenfield. Um, that's about it. And then Hitler's Castle is the only one that the whole crew, we did a company move out to Lenox, Massachusetts, Ventfort Hall, which was the house from the Cider House Rules. Yeah. Now that's Hitler's castle, so. <laughs> <laughs> the Cider House rules, Hitler winds up dying there sometime later. Uh, with costuming, how did you find costuming? To fit all the Nazi uniforms and makeup and everything? My friend Sean Bridgers, who was the lead puppeteer in um, Elsie Hooper, and, and I've worked with him on every project, I've, I've every film project I've done so far, he had worked with uh, Carol Cutshaw on uh, Rectify uh, and just wow. just couldn't say enough good things about her and, and, and how talented she was and what she could bring to this movie. So she and I had quite a few conversations about this movie and we just loved talking to each other and, and, and she's so inventive and creative and she was fully on board with this kind of Norman Rockwell idea and then the idea that everything would be told very straight-faced and everything would be really honest in terms of the 80s wouldn't look like a, a an MTV video from right, the time. Yeah. It looked like the way people in a small town actually dress in the 1980s, which is just a little dorky. Um, and she just fully embraced the the idea of, of this movie and then executed based often on my conceptual designs and storyboards real world interpretations of those things that are just so iconic um and she had constantly been been under the threat that another job that she was due to potentially work on would okay. call her in and sure enough at the 11th hour she got called in on that job after completely fully designing the movie wow. so michael bevins who i'd worked with before he happened to be free just at that time and he came on board and then it you know, accentuated her vision and executed it, and then he and I had a bunch of new elements that we discussed and worked on and 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 did together. And Michael built almost every major costume you see is something that he he made. The uh, bars leather jacket, uh, his bomber jacket. Michael yeah, yeah. made that from from whole cloth. Okay. So an incredibly talented uh, couple people doing the costume design on this movie.
Did you have an opportunity to do like costume fitting, or you just had to kind of go on the? On the oh no, yeah, no. We everybody sent over their measurements, and then when they came to ten, and Michael's, he's a veteran, so he's very familiar with either leaving a little room or leaving room for him to kind of adjust the stitching once they come. Um, so he, he, once everybody came to town, he tried everything on and, and everything usually within the first try would fit like a glove. And if it didn't, then he could go make modifications over the course of a few days before the person started shooting. So we, we did fittings with everybody and, and his talent and execution kind of made that, made that happen. Uh, you have quite a bit of stunts in the movie. Did you look out for people to do stunts? Did you had it in mind that this was going to happen that way? Yeah, I knew that there'd be a lot of stunts and there wouldn't be a lot of time to execute them. So uh, Jared Burke and his stunt team out of New York, I'd worked with them on a movie that I co-produced called The Woman uh, for Lucky McKee, and that had um, a few pretty good stunts in it. And I just, I really loved working with Jared at the time. Uh, he's just a good, fun, friendly guy, and, and I liked his work ethic, and I liked... Uh, that he seemed to be quick on his feet and obviously concerned with safety. And so when this movie came to, to pass, there was nobody else I had in mind. I called Jared uh, sometime in advance and he said, I'll be there for it. And, and so he brought together the, the stunt team, the carjackers that attacked Barr at the beginning of the movie. Those are all his part of his stunt team. Um, and then he worked with Mark Steger for throughout the Bigfoot sequence. And there's some big stunts like Barr gets led off a cliff by the Bigfoot at one point, and the camera shoots out over the cliff and yes. cliff and watches him fall. That's a big stunt because not only do you have the stuntman going off the edge of a cliff, but the camera is trailing right behind them and ultimately booming right over his head. Um, so getting that all synchronized between camera and stunts, you've got this glorious four-second stunt that took uh, three-fourths of a day to put together. So those big moments, I needed somebody that could that could work quickly but also kind of execute them in a really seamless way, especially because Sam's 74 years old and, and we have to double him for some of these stunts, even though Sam wound up putting the harness on and dangling himself off the edge of the cliff and was often doing all, any stunt that he could do himself, bouncing his head off the roof of the car, uh, <laughs> fighting the carjackers, uh, fighting Bigfoot. I mean, you can tell that Sam through almost all of it. So it's just the really key moments. Um, the stuntman, his name was James, uh, would come in and, and double for, for Sam. So it was just a great team. Good, good. Uh we haven't, you know, yet, yet, actually, it's not just Sam the movie in the vault. There's quite an Andrew and Turner. Um, there's quite a other people in the movie that people would recognize. And the one I'm happy to see is still back is Larry, the comedian Larry Ross. Uh, Larry Miller, yes. Oh, Larry Miller, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Larry, yeah, Larry is uh, one of my wife's favorite stand-up comedians. He was the absolute last hire on the movie. We, we, we'd had another actor that was pretty much... Uh, signed on and good to go and kind of like what happened with Carol a bigger show called yeah. him in and and you know we can't you can't fight City Hall sometimes on those things and and it was just a bummer because we were so excited to work with him and so we had to quickly pivot to another actor and my wife just I, I, we were having a conversation about who maybe it could be and she suggested Larry we we got in touch with him through Kelly Roy 
And Larry said yes right away, and he had almost no time at all to prepare, study his lines, do anything. He kind of just dropped in town and, and put that performance into the movie. That's incredible and, and shows what a natural he is in some ways for him to be able to just show up and completely embody this character and kind of do one of his most subtle non-comedic performances. Right, we're all kind of used to him being a loud actor, right? A loud character. Yep. And, and here he's kind of reserved and almost kind of... Um, and it's a great scene with him and Sam together. There was like the one where they're at the concert, they're sitting together, and, and the barber and everything. They're just sure. fantastic together. Yeah, he, they had great chemistry. There's the the... The hotel that Sam stayed at had a bar downstairs, kind of a, it's uh, called the Deerfield Inn in Deerfield, Massachusetts, and it's it's this great old New England colonial manor, I guess you could say, and Sam was down there having a drink and eating his dinner, and he looked next to him, and Larry Miller was sitting next to him, and they kind of hadn't quite recognized each other yet, and then they locked eyes, and Larry Larry just looked at Sam, and he goes, I think I'm your brother. <laughs> that's, how they, that's how they met, and it was just really sweet watching them watching them work together, and they, they had a great, just a great dynamic together. And Larry was only on the shoot for three or four days, so it was just a short, you know, he's there for a week, he came a day early so he could study, and actually he came over the weekend again, so he came for a full week, even though he shot for, I think, three or four days, um, just so he could spend time with Sam and, and watch and, and see what he was doing, and then bring his own unique thing to it as well. Uh, rounding up the cast, also Ron Livingston. Yeah, Ron was who I wrote the part for, he was the only person I kind of wrote a part for. Okay. And it wasn't that I ever thought he would do it, but that's just who I pictured in my head. And that's who I thought would be the coolest person to see when you're finally ready for this movie to start giving you the catharsis that the title promises. Yeah. I thought, when that door opens, who's the FBI agent you'd most want to see kind of deliver this message about the Bigfoot? I just felt like for some reason that Ron Livingston would do that in a really fun but honest way and I think that's exactly what he did you believe every word he's saying and I don't know quite how he pulled that off <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful scene because of the stark contrast here you got Ron Lewis's character who looks like very fresh very clean cut and explaining all this to obviously to Sam Elliott who has many experiences in his life right and almost unbelievable it's a wonderful contrast to play out and carry on to the next scene uh, yeah, and there's a bit of hero worship going on in that scene, yeah. which gets kind of shattered um, as Sam explains his his position on everything that happened in the war. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean that that there's a lot that happens in that scene. There's a lot of information that has to get conveyed to the audience, and Rizwan Manji, Sam Elliott, and Ron Livingston just just showed up and and executed it in a really straight-faced way even though we were all having a lot of fun uh, and even though we hoped the audience would be having a lot of fun with it they play it right in that kind of perfect zone where it doesn't come off as as a total parody or comedy it just they they sell it that's that the, that's a, some gifted acting on all of their parts um, excuse me, I haven't got it written down, but um, the nice person who plays Sam Elliott's girlfriend in the movie, um, 
Caitlin. Caitlin Fitzgerald. Caitlin Fitzgerald. That's right. Yeah, Caitlin was one of I think 500 people that that went on tape to audition for the role. Um, and when we saw Caitlin's audition, it was just so obvious that this was the kind of person that that Sam's character, or that Calvin Barr, would look up to. And I just felt that she would bring something really special and human to the part. And she's just a, a genuine, incredible person and was so fun to work with and willing to just embrace this completely bizarre idea and, and be the heart of it and do that without ever um, doing anything but taking the concept seriously. And that's, that's what pretty much all of the actors did in their own unique way is they sold the insanity of this concept by just being good people and being being human. And it's kind of watching the movie, the, the strangest thing to me is that when the end titles are rolling, I don't think you're really thinking a lot about Hitler or Bigfoot. You're thinking about something else, and that's that's something that they all pulled off. That's That still surprises me. When I originally watched it, I, I had to... It was really kind of a surprise how I thought it was just going to be action and all this stuff, but it has some really good, quiet moments. It has great cinematography. It has a lot to think about when you watch this movie. And I think people kind of be surprised when you rent it. Well, it's good. I, that's good, and I hope so. That's that's all that we wanted. We just wanted to surprise people with something. You you come in for something expecting it might be one thing, and then hopefully you'll allow it to be another thing that might be more meaningful in some ways. Because there's lots of movies that deliver on the promise of a completely bonkers, zany title, and you get this exploitation kind of movie, and a lot of those exist. And I just don't know that this one needed to be that. I think those movies already are out there. And so this one is, is has a very different function and, and had that function pretty much from the start. There were some things going on in my life that entirely changed the perspective that I had when I began writing the script and started thinking about an older person looking back and thinking about loss and regrets and lost connections and not taking the path that maybe you could have that would have led you to your happier self. And so those were the things I was thinking of and they just happened to be in a movie with a title this this silly. Uh, with all of everything kind of wrapped up and shot, um, post-production, how long did it take kind of edit it and get it all cleaned up and ready to go? We edited the film from September to December of... 2017 okay and then we took the sound to skywalker uh very very small movie for them to take this one on it was yeah good call. Cool. they would take it to skywalker they got wonderful yeah movies. i mean it, our uh our first ad elaine gibson had a, a relationship there um she had she had done another film there and basically proposed this this little movie and they said we'll do it and so we got to spend two weeks with uh, Jonathan Griever and Steven Urata nice. uh, doing the sound mix there with our sound designer Andrew Smedic who had been working on the sound design for months and then we went and mixed it all in including the score Joe Kramer's gorgeous score for the movie. Oh yes, I failed to mention the score. Yes, yes, it fits very well. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, Joe Kramer and I 
had been talking about this since we uh, did. He did the Elsie Hooper short, the score, the score for it, and he was very aware of this script. He read about thirty pages of it. He doesn't like to read the the screenplay before he works on the movie. He needs to get a sense of whether or not he wants to do it, but he doesn't want to immerse himself in the story so that he can kind of come at the end and see what you've actually created with no more preconceived notions or ideas about what maybe he was thinking it would be. The film ends up being, um, it either meets the script halfway, it winds up being exactly the script, or it winds up being nothing like the script. And so he likes to just see what that winds up looking like, and then hopefully he can also be a fresh set of eyes for the filmmaker just to discuss the edit in general. And so Joe read the first 30 pages and called me and said, I'm in, I'm going to, I'm going to do this movie. And then he waited until there was a finished cut of the movie to really look at it and uh, start writing themes. So uh, it's a great process. And I really actually enjoyed that because then Joe, who's an amazing storyteller could bring his thoughts on the edit just to help make everything kind of, uh, gel in a in a very collaborative way it was cool uh were you in on the whole editing process or you just kind of check in once in a while no i sat i sat all day every day and and my zach passero and i just hung together in a in a room with a closed door for five months (laughs) or whatever (laughs) it was uh yes i think five months uh, do you like doing editing? I mean, come on, that's kind of the storytelling. It's kind of like taking all the pieces and putting it together. Do you kind of? Oh yeah, it? no, editing and writing are maybe they're probably the most fun parts of it. The shooting is just all high pressure, yeah. uh, nightmarish terror that you're keeping to yourself. <laughs> um, <laughs> when you're writing, it's it doesn't cost anything for paper. It doesn't cost anything to type some words onto a page, so you're not worrying about the budget you're just writing it and then when you're done you've got this finished thing and editing it uh is just shaping it into the thing that you ultimately hope it will be and you have all these disparate pieces that you're pulling together and these themes and ideas that you can choose to amplify or or quiet down a little bit Um, and it's kind of like orchestrating the movie after you've already in your mind thought it will be this thing now you have this whole other process that that uh, shapes the movie into. I've heard somebody describe it as very apt. It's kind of the final draft of the screenplay is the edit. Uh, that's very much what it feels like. So I mean, Zach and I just just had a blast. We had 90 hours of footage. Our first wow. cut of the movie was three hours long, uh, wow. and the movie itself wound up at 98 minutes. So there was there was plenty to think about and and work with there. Yeah, especially when you're editing, it's easier to cut back than to add, right? So you, even though it's like we had three hours, we had to cut back. But um, especially for an independent film, it's it's pretty difficult to get a lot of multiple takes. Were you able to do a lot of multiple takes? I John Sales, our executive producer and and uh, collaborator on this movie, had advised me to keep my takes down because the schedule was so tight. So he okay. said. You have good actors stick to about three takes and maybe you can go to six in a crisis. But he said, if you're getting beyond six, it's probably your fault. So, <laughs> so I, te- I kept it to about three takes for the most part. Even if, even if I felt there was a performance issue, I would know we'd have it in some other coverage and just try to move on. So I only 
would go beyond three takes if there was a really, really good reason to to do that. And I think that between that and our first AD, Elaine Gibson coming up with an incredible schedule for the movie, that's how we crammed everything that was in the script into a 25-day shoot. Um, and then the kind of secret weapon was Todd Samadavia, who was the cinematographer on Elsie Hooper. He was our second unit DP, and he was always right nearby, so I could just walk to wherever he was and supervise the second unit. Wow. So he was right. shooting beautiful inserts. Um, or when we were shooting, he would be somewhere within the lighting setup grabbing another angle that was every bit as cinematic as the A camera. So there was really kind of two A cameras because whatever Todd was shooting was matching the quality and the cinematic intention of uh, the A camera. So it was that was the secret weapon of this movie was almost always running two cameras, but the camera would be working a storyboard. It wasn't just like, let's just grab any random shot we can. Sure, the movie right. meant to be cinematic, so it, it needed to fit within that. And if it didn't fit within the lighting scheme and just kind of didn't make sense to be there, then that would be the very rare occasion Todd would get a break. But I don't think he ever really had a break. He seemed to be working nonstop. He was one of the hardest working people on the movie, him and his, his unit. Well, you're on the whole uh, publicity campaign. Do you have anything coming up? Any appearances coming up? Uh, let's see. What's coming up next? Uh, I know I'm going to an art school in North Carolina in the next couple weeks to okay. do a class. Basically, the, the students are going to watch the film and then spend a day just talking about independent filmmaking and how you pull off a movie like this on this budget and the trials and tribulations and joys of making an independent film. And then I, I, I believe an Alamo draft house out there will be showing it. And there might be another engagement that I'll, that I'll go to as a hosted screening, um, maybe in New York. And then I just today we got invited to a film festival in Helsinki as the movie starts to go international. So I'll probably be at that. So there's still more events ahead. And then in the meantime, I'm just writing and, and working on some other material so that, um, you know, if somebody allows it, I'll try to make another movie. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. I, I, I was, my, that was going to be my next question. This whole experience is, might you continue making movies, or this was kind of it? But it sounds like you want to continue doing it. I think it's, it's, it's a, the jury is still out. It's up to people to decide whether they want that or not. And I'll know pretty quickly whether or not people want that or not by, whether or not they will take a meeting with me or want to talk about what I'm what I'm doing. I mean, again, I love I love illustration. I love writing, uh, and I'm I, at this point. I'm just I feel very grateful I was allowed to make this movie and with the freedom that we had and with the team that we had. And at some point, I'm looking forward to a little break to just reflect on that and relax for a moment. Uh, I my my wife and I are not wealthy, so I can't. I can't rest on my laurels. <laughs> I, I will need to work again at some point. Well, whatever, whatever that is, again, I just, I'm, I'm fortunate I was able to do this one, and I think that that's maybe the most important thing to me right now. Yeah. Are you able to, on your downtime, able to watch movies? All the time. That's that's, uh, that's how I decompress. That's how I study. That's how I learn. So I'm 
constantly watching movies, good movies, bad movies, I don't care. I learned something from both, so uh, I, don't, I barely even gripe anymore when I see a bad movie because I learn so much from it that I can still enjoy it. It's pretty rare that I see a bad movie that I'm actually grumpy at anymore, so... I have the yeah. same. I'm the same way. After interviewing many directors, many actors, and writers, and everything, I kind of a less grumpy watching movies. I have appreciated all the things they have to, all the obstacles they have to come, just to get. Because it's a group effort, right? It's a group effort to get everybody to agree and get. Yeah, you're not it. you're not alone on an island making a movie. That's a joke. And if you ever talk to somebody that makes it sound like they did everything, that's just it, it's just simply not true. Uh, that when you see this movie it's the artistic contributions of over a hundred people and some of those contributions the whole entire movie hinges on them not dropping the ball and for a movie to get done where nobody drops the ball and the movie actually works that that took a small army to pull that off and so as the director you are kind of guiding the the I guess you're trying to have good taste and good judgment for all of the decisions and all of the options that everybody's bringing to you. You're, you're just trying to guide them all into a, a, a few flavors that fit the movie, that fit the general vision of what you're trying to do. But when you have really talented artists, you also want to collaborate with them and hear them out and let them bring their gifts, which means listening to new and radical ideas that could wind up totally um, surprising you in a way that now the movie would never have been as good without that contribution from that person. So I think just remaining open to the collaboration and recognizing that, that you're not alone. I think the most scary element was, was the misinformation or the, or the um, being naive about the notion that when I showed up on set, it would all be my responsibility and I, I, I took that on in a really anxiety inducing way and after about the third day on the shoot I realized oh my goodness there's there's all these people and they all care about their jobs every bit as much as I do and they're all doing their jobs so well stop worrying and just trust all these people and it was this enormous pressure valve that was released um, and I don't know why that notion had never occurred to me before. I can't explain it because it seems so simple. Right, it does. It yeah. wasn't until the third day of the shoot that I that I actually made that realization. Were you able to after all the uh, stuff? Able to kind of celebrate after finishing it all done? Every everybody get together and kind of celebrate and have a good time. Yeah, well, I mean, when we were shooting the movie, we would all hang out on the weekends. The okay. bar that opens the the film was the bar that the crew would hang out at most nights when we wrapped. Sam Elliott would throw pizza parties two times a week at least. He'd go he'd buy twenty six pizzas late at night for the whole crew just for fun. Even though we'd eaten, he still just wanted to have a pizza party. Uh, <laughs> the man loves a Hawaiian pizza. Half those pizzas would be Hawaiian, Hawaiian pizza. pizzas. Um, and and yeah, we, we'd all hang out on the weekends and, and go fishing and swimming and go out to the Connecticut River and have picnics and just just hang out. And we've all almost universally the crew has stayed in touch and 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 keeps hanging out with each other when we get an opportunity we all try to get together um and we got to celebrate the premiere at uh 
uh, Fantasia in Montreal, and a lot of crew came out to that. And then almost everybody was was there just a few weeks ago when we had the Los Angeles premiere of the movie with almost the entire cast and crew. So every chance we get, the movie's just an excuse to get all of us together to hang out. Nice. It is fun. I, well, Robert, I have to say, um, we're getting close to the end here. I want to say thanks for coming on. This was really a lot of fun. I hope you had a lot of fun coming on, too. Talking oh, yeah. No, th this was great. Thank you, Nick. And thank you for wanting to have me on and for for seeing the movie and, and, and telling your listeners about it. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Um, and, uh, yeah, you're welcome to come on if you just want to talk comics and movies. That'd be an uh, absolute blast. So. Well, you let, you let me know. If you come up with something that I'd be useful to talk about, I'm, I'm here anytime. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. congratulations on your movie. It was 12 years in the making. More than 12 years in the making. Congratulations on a movie and having it out there. Um, Robert, we have a thing on our podcast. It's not over to the guest says it's over. It's over. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah.